Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers and back with us for a return engagement is Becky Gray, who is Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation and a frequent guest on our program because she is well-versed in a number of policy issues and affect all forms of both state and national government. And uh, we depend on her for updates and assistance in explaining these complicated issues to people like me who uh, are just not to, uh, as well-versed as she is. Let me put it that way. Well, Becky, thank you for being with us again. And uh, uh, we are, uh, as we stated before the program began, we are uh, a year and a couple of weeks past the beginning of the of the uh, pandemic pan- pandemic and and uh, COVID-19 crisis. And uh, as I said uh, to you then, I, we're a lot further down the road than I thought we would be. And uh, essentially, uh, we don't have nearly as many problems as we all feared we might have. For example, state government coffers are, are in pretty good shape. Right. And, uh, you know, I think many of us were kind of surprised at that. You know, Don, a, a year ago when you and I were talking about this, who who knew what was ahead? All we knew was that we were facing an international crisis, the likes of which we had never seen. And where this was going to end, what impact it was going to have on the economy, what impact it was going to have on people's health. We didn't know then. You know, if we if we had known then what we know now, some of our responses may have very well been very different. But you can't do that. You can only deal with the facts that you have in front of you at the time. And so looking back over this last year, um, we, we've made some decisions. There have been some things that have been done that, and, and there's some silver linings there. I think that we have learned a lot through this of kind of the role of government and and some of the things that we should leave in place, some of the waivers that have been put in place to get through the pandemic of regulations, um, some of the other things in healthcare. These are things that we really should think about continuing as we as we go on, as we get past the pandemic. And then there's a lot of things, restrictions, particularly that once we get past this, and for, for some folks like myself, I think we should be moving quicker towards removing those restrictions to get people back to work. It looks like our schools are well on their way to opening up to full-time instruction again, which is critical to get the kids back in the classroom. The learning loss is something that we're gonna have to deal with for months, probably years moving forward. Getting people back to work, getting people people's businesses back up and running. Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot of businesses that are, are not going to make it through this, um, that we will never see again, people having lost their investments in some of those businesses. So, you know, there's a it, it's been a rough year, um, a lot of lessons learned, and I think a lot of good lessons moving forward to really look at things, assess things, the way that we do them, um, particularly from a state government perspective, the role of government, not just in a pandemic, but every day in our lives to kind of reevaluate that. So I think that there's a lot to learn from this, Don. Well, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday and they had a very good example. They said, you know, you have hurricanes and you have tornadoes. And a hurricane, of course, is widespread damage and a tornado is isolated damage. And that's what we ended up having. I think we all expected that the economy was going to tike and it would be across the board. We would have what amounts to a recession. Uh, of course, what ended up happening was the stock market actually performed quite well. Uh, and uh, 
So we didn't have a hurricane. What we did have was a tornado where we had isolated damage and uh, where it struck, it struck hard. And, uh, uh, you know, the airline industry, the uh, hospitality industry, uh, all suffered greatly and uh, a, a number of others. But uh, the widespread damage that uh, uh, comes with a hurricane just didn't happen. And uh, uh, last year this time, we were, we were worried about all sorts of catastrophic uh, situations. And uh, uh, they, they, just, they just didn't happen. Uh, right. And then I think some, something, some things happened that we weren't expecting. One of the things that I have to really kind of marvel at is the resilience of people and the resilience of entrepreneurs, the resilience of business investors, that where one opportunity was lost, you know, an example of that would be the restaurants that had closed. But we saw a lot of restaurants doing takeout orders. Uh, we saw meals being prepared that you could pick up at a restaurant and then take home and cook yourself. Yeah. So there, you know, I mean, lots of examples of that kind of thing where businesses pivoted, um, a lot of online commerce really bubbled up through this that normally would not would not have happened or if it would have would have taken a lot longer to get there. So, um, you know, I think, again, I think there are a lot of things to, to look at with this. And as we move forward through this, lessons learned of how we can do things better. And I think one of it is, is to open up opportunities for people, um, get regulation, get government out of the way so that this um, this innovative, entrepreneurial kind of activity can grow even more. And North Carolina's response uh, was uh, uh, very appropriate. We we reacted a little stronger than uh, than most uh, than most of our uh, peer states like Georgia and Florida and and uh, some of the southern states that uh, uh, reacted a lot slower than we did. And of course, it's paid off in rich dividends. We've had uh, basically fewer cases and we've recovered quicker. So I guess we can be thankful for that also. But that you know that's sort of typical of North Carolina. We um, we're a state that uh, typically doesn't overreact to much of anything. And uh, sometimes we are a little slow attacking a problem, but we usually get it solved. And that's uh, one of the things I brag about when I talk to people from other parts of the country. Uh, North Carolina may be a little slow sometimes in getting a problem on its agenda. But when we do, we typically fix it rather than put Band-Aids on it. And yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and where we have led the country, and I think it's important, is you know, in tax reform, the way that our economy has turned around. We had, we had one of the strongest economies in the country going into this because decisions of, had, that have been made over the last 10 years, and it certainly positioned us well. And so, Don, kind of to your point about we may not be the first ones out of the gate. We're more cautious. We're more conservative, fiscally conservative, if you will. Um, and I think that that was the case with this, um, a lot of the reaction to the pandemic as well. We were careful. We also, we planned well. We had money in the bank. We had a economic policies in place that we had a robust economy. So we were in a much better position to rebound from this than some of the other states that we've seen around the country. And it uh, has paid off, uh, as I said, very well. And of course, you mentioned the fact that uh, schools are now beginning to reopen and uh, that process, uh, the damage, uh, of course, has been done in the sense that uh, at-home instruction did not work as well as in-class instruction. And that may be a great lesson for us to learn there as well, because I think there were those who uh, were looking at uh, 
distant learning is maybe a huge uh, opportunity for uh, education, it's still there and it still will work, but it is not ever going to replace in-class instruction. Yeah, and you know, Don, I think uh, along those lines, I think one of the things that we learned was that children learn differently. They have individual needs and they respond individually to different opportunities that are in front of them. You know, as you alluded to, there were some kids who did quite well with the online instruction. There are a lot of kids that didn't do well with that. So I think, again, sort of the silver linings and what did we learn coming out of the pandemic? One of them is that we know that children learn differently. And I think that this is a real opportunity to look at offering lots of different options, lots of choices for families and parents to choose what works best for their child, even within a family. You know, the same thing doesn't necessarily work. So again, I think it's an opportunity to think about education in a different way and really focusing whatever it is that we're offering, whether it's for a kindergartner or whether it's for a university student, that to kind of meet them where they are, if you will, and make those opportunities available and really think about how we can restructure or deliver education in a different kind of way. Another thing that has come out of this has been the fact that uh, uh, North Carolina has continued to be a a location of choice for a lot of industry and uh, the major cities like New York City uh, may very well see a a big exodus over the next uh, 10 years of uh, headquarters and uh, uh, big business. And it may end up uh, that uh, North Carolina is the beneficiary of that. Well, along with some other states. Right. No, and, and, and I think we're seeing this. We saw this before the pandemic that, again, I'll go back to we had a robust economy. We had a lot of jobs. Of course, there's the natural resources and the beauty of North Carolina. And, of course, the great people that live here. I have to mention that. Um, but the, the challenge then that, that we have with that when we have people choosing to move to North Carolina and sort of voting with their feet, if you will, for some of the great policies that we have in place, then it also opens up challenges as far as infrastructure, as far as, you know, we're talking about education. When people move here, they bring their children with them or they have children while they're here. And so there's additional pressures on the education system. And so as we have more people here, those are going to be challenges that we're going to face. And and I think with good planning, and I think we're doing this, that North Carolina will be well positioned to be able to, to serve and welcome the newcomers that we have. And then, Don, one thing we have to mention when we're talking about people moving here, businesses moving here, businesses expanding here. Another thing we've learned through this pandemic is the problem with broadband access that we have across the state. In many of our urban areas, we have affordable great access, very broad access to broadband, but in many of our rural areas, we don't. And we saw that with the kids doing the online learning. We also saw it with more and more parents working remotely, working from home, and you've got to have that broadband access for most jobs in order to do that. And the other thing where we saw that really become really apparent was with more people accessing healthcare through telehealth, being able to confer with their physician over their computer for some, you know, kind of basic medical needs. But those are areas that are not going to go away when the pandemic goes away. These are areas that we're going to have an increased need for. So this um, this idea of how do we how do we ensure access to quality broadband at affordable cost is another challenge that our state's going to be facing. And of course, we've all learned Zooming, and we're actually doing this broadcast by Zoom. Becky's in her, uh, either her home or her office. I'm 
happen to be at home today. I, I, I am back at work most of the time now, but uh, Zoom is going to cut down tremendously on the number of those who travel for business, but also make it more frequent that you can be in touch with your subsidiary operations and uh, uh, business associates uh, across the state and across the country. It's, uh, it, it is a great lesson and one that we uh, will learn and use for years. Right. And so, you know, how do we ensure that broadband connection, again, is going to be a real challenge. It's something that the General Assembly is looking at. As a matter of fact, uh, we expect a bill probably this week that will really look at removing some of the the impediments to putting that broadband in. North Carolina is getting an influx of some money from the federal government directed at expanding this broadband um, this broadband access. So we're going to be hearing and seeing more about that. And again, I think this is another thing that the pandemic has brought to the forefront for another challenge for us to, to look at, really think about, put great minds together and make good things happen here in North Carolina. In our next session with the uh, next segment of Carolina Newsmakers with Becky Gray, we're going to talk about the, the first days of the new uh, Democratic administration of Joe Biden and what kind of grades she would give him and uh, the challenges that he faces. And we'll do that when we return right here on Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Becky Grace, Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation. And uh, we are uh, going to spend this segment of Carolina Newsmakers talking about the first 100 days or so of the uh, Biden administration. And Becky, I'd like to get your uh, reactions on how the transition has, has, has happened, what is good, what is questionable and maybe what uh, is lacking and, and and then we'll turn to what's ahead. But let's, let's talk about what has happened so far and uh, what kind of marks and uh, grades would you give to the Biden administration for uh, their first couple of months in office? Well, you know, I think the biggest difference um, is just sort of the dignity 
and calmness that has been restored to the White House and the presidency. You know, whether you like President Trump or you didn't like President Trump, I think we can all agree he was a big personality with a lot of activity around him, often quite controversial. And so you've just seen a different sort of calmness go back into the White House. And many people would say he has restored some dignity to the office. one of the things that concerns me, well, I mean, there's several things that concern me in that um, actually Joe Biden pretty much ran on the fact that he was not President Trump and that he would restore confidence, he would restore a calmness, he would restore a dignity to the office of the president. And again, I think that he has done that. Um, but that's not going to get you into ruling the country, governing the country, working with Congress, doing all the things, and certainly the international questions that the President of the United States has to deal with. Um, some of the of his executive orders, some of rolling back some of the things that, um, that President Trump had put in place, I find troublesome. Um, I think that the the situation at the border, the Mexican border, really concerns me with rolling back those kind of things and the problems that we have down there, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Um, some of the the things that he's talked about with the with the environment, um, some of the things that he's talking about. One of the things that concerns me, coming from North Carolina, which has a long, long history of being a right to work state, is um, he wants to roll back the right to work and, and really make make it so that the I think there's 27 states who are right to work states that he wants to roll that back. I find that very concerning. Um, some of the things in the code, this latest round of COVID money, the ARP money. Um, American Recovery Plan, I believe is what that acronym stands for, Um, huge increase in the debt of the United States. That concerns me greatly. Um, You know, I'm not sure that that all of the money that's going out is really warranted and really needed. Um, I I think that some of it is. I think that we we do need to help with people that are still out of work through no fault of their own. I mean, there are still needs there. There's still the rollout of the vaccine. There are certainly things that need to be done. I think that the, the amount of money is just excessive and unneeded and, again, just puts us further into debt. So, I mean, it's still early, but there are some very troublesome signs to me. And some of the positions that he's taken and the policies that he has taken are not things that I'm just I'm just not sure that that's really what people voted for when they voted for Joe Biden. Some of the what I what I would consider um, a pretty a pretty strong leaning to the left um, and kowtowing to the more left leaning part of his party, I think, is um probably not unexpected, but was not really part of the deal that I think a lot of people had in mind when they voted for him. What uh, is your assessment of the appointments he has made so far for cabinet positions and so forth? You know, Don, I mean, it looks fine for me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, obviously. So I think he has appointed a lot of women to some of these races, uh, uh, positions. Of course, you know, there were there were women in the Trump administration as well. So, um, you know, I like that. Really and truly, it's too early for me to answer that question. Um, I have I have concerns. I mean, I think we should all be watching those. And it says a lot about a leader of who they surround themselves with. So I think that, too, will be part of Joe Biden's ability to govern and how he governs is who he surrounds himself with. But I, I think it's a little for me, it's just a little bit early to, to really tell what that's going to look like. 
What about uh, in foreign relations? Uh, we have gotten pretty shaky with our relations with a number of our former close allies. Uh, have have we restored those relationships? Uh, or what is your view there? Well, I think it's going to take take a little bit of time to develop whatever those Biden relationships are with some of the other leaders across the country. The other thing is with this pandemic and as the rest of the world, along with the United States, tries to recover from this, I still think it's really fluid and it's going to be different and there'll be different challenges that that we see. I think it's imperative that the trade agreements, that things are left open for an economy to grow and for us to have healthy trade relations with other countries. Um, You know, there's the humanitarian questions that are happening in other countries that um, I think are, are, are troublesome. And I think that the United States has a position in the world that we need to be concerned about that. Um, So again, I think it's probably still a little too early to see, but again, as Joe Biden moves further and further to the left, I think that becomes more and more concerning. One of the situations that uh, I think Trump thought he was handling, that uh, President Trump thought he was handling, that indeed uh, seems to be maybe even worse than it was uh, when Trump came in, and that's our situation with North Korea. I don't think that, uh, from what I can tell, that situation is uh, not any better, despite what. uh, Trump did it in his efforts to establish a relationship. Well, and yeah, of course, the thing with that, with nuclear weapons, and and that, I mean, it's a very dangerous situation as well. Um, and I, you know, going back, I think you know one of the things too that I think we're seeing, and that I think that Joe Biden is seeing, is that you know some of the decisions that Trump made, and I'll use the border in Mexico as an example. You know, there was a reason to have those restrictions of so many people coming in at one time because of the problems that we're now seeing with that. And um, so that that would just be another point that I would make. You know, a, a lot has been made about the fact that the Senate has, uh, the majority of the Senate has changed hands with the uh, 50-50 count. And of course, the vice president can uh, vote. And so they, there is a slight majority. But the biggest change there is in the, uh, because most of the government is actually done by committees. And so now all the committee chairmen are Democrats instead of Republicans. Uh, and of course, we've had that situation in the House. Uh, we we will have an election coming up in, in less now less than two years, a year and what three months, uh, nine months. Uh, what do you think will happen as it looks uh, as we look to the future? Will that uh, majority hold, or will it strengthen? Well, I think historically, what we see is the midterm election during a president's term the other party gains seats. And again, I think this leftward direction that Joe Biden is taking and pulling, um, or I think some of the more liberal members of Congress are pulling him that way, and his vice president is pulling him that way. I think that it will look good for Republicans with with this. Um, The being fearful of some of the decisions that Joe Biden has made. Again, people who voted for Joe Biden because he wasn't President Trump, I think are going to be 
And I think they are becoming alarmed with some of the policy positions that he's taking and the direction that he's taking in the country. And I think that we will see the impact of that and the ramifications of that in the election of 2022. And of course, we have a big, you know, we have a big Senate race here in 2022. I've been a little surprised that uh, President Trump has not spoken out on more issues since he left office. He's been relatively quiet. What do you see his role in the next year? Uh, how do you think he will affect uh, the governance of our country? Yeah, you know, Don, that's a that's a really good question. And really, I think the, the more pertinent question with that is how much of an influence is he going to have on the Republican Party and Republican candidates and Republican fundraising? And, you know, there's a real division. Well, I think there are divisions in both the Republican and the Democratic parties. Um, but where President Trump fits, what his role is moving forward after being a president. He has alluded to the fact that he's going to run again in 2024. Um, his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, is at least thinking about running for that Senate seat here in, in North Carolina. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't know. And since President Trump has had his Twitter account taken away from him. We we haven't heard as much as we did when he had the Twitter account, when we had, you know, almost moment by moment, blow by blows um, from, from him and what he was doing. But I think the, the Republican Party has a lot to think about. I think the Republican Party has a lot of soul searching to do. You know, where does President Trump fit moving forward into this? What is his influence? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that right now, but I think that, um, I, and, and I'm not sure that he does, to be honest with you. Um, some of that will continue to play out and see what direction it is, what kind of, what the involvement is of particular candidates. And, um, you know, fundraising and support also has a big, big thing to do with it. And of course, the Democrats have got their own problems. So I think we're seeing a lot of soul searching and probably going to be a lot of turmoil for political junkies like myself. This is really exciting to get to, to see all of this and the, the turmoil and the discussion and the debate and where we end up. I'm not sure where that's going to be. Well, we uh, and we may talk about this in uh, one of the later segments of today's program, and that is the growing number of people who do not feel particularly close if they're Democrats. They don't necessarily feel all that close to the Democratic Party, and the Republicans don't feel all that close to the Republican Party. Now, there's a hardcore that does, not saying that, but uh, uh, the the number of people who are registering as unaffiliates or, or uh, independents uh, is growing daily, and that uh, should be a a big flag that should wave right in front of both the Democrats and the Republicans to say, wait a minute, you need to, you need to listen to the, to the public. They clearly are not uh, as deeply involved with party politics as they once were. Yeah, or, or aligned with either party. And I think yeah. the latest that statistics that I saw, and we saw this during this last election is at least here in North Carolina, about a third of the voters are Republican, about a third are Democrats, and about a third are unaffiliated. Not as you mentioned, that seems to be growing, that middle ground seems to be growing. And so what you're ending up with is more division. You kind of have everybody going to their corners with the group in the middle getting wider and wider. Um, and which way that's pulled and where people identify and, you know, what, I, I guess my biggest fear in it, Don, to be honest with you, is that people become so disgusted, so discouraged, feel so misplaced that they don't engage anymore. And I think that's the biggest danger that I see. 
One of the, the concerns that uh, most economists, because the economy does appear to be booming uh, or are set to boom uh, in many respects, uh, interest rates are going to slide back up and uh, uh, whether they're not ever going to go back, at least for the foreseeable future, to the normal rates of 6% or even higher that we had way back, but interest rates are going to slide up. Uh, and uh, that will probably also be on the minds of people when they come up for that midterm election that uh, things may be uh, a little bit more difficult to, to maneuver in business. Right. I think you're exactly right. I mean, those are the kitchen table issues that people care about. The economy. Do I have a job? Do I have a prospect of getting a better job? And the other thing is we talked earlier in the segment, education. How do I feel about my children's education, my children's future? Um, and those are the kitchen table issues that North Carolinians and people care about when we have a, when elections come up. And speaking of elections, in our next segment, we're going to talk about the birth Senate seat that's up. We'll talk a little bit more, more about redistricting, and we'll also talk about the results uh, and what we can look for, for for North Carolina from the results of the census that will be coming out with its new numbers, which will probably show that North Carolina is indeed growing. And we'll do that when we return with more Carolina Newsmakers. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Years 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mom. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. And we're back with Carolina Newsmakers. Betty, uh, Becky Gray is our guest. She's the Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, a frequent guest on our program. Uh, and she formerly was a regular panelist on Tom Campbell's former program, North Carolina Spin, which I miss greatly. Uh, and uh, uh, she writes a monthly column for the Carolina Journal. Uh, and... Uh, where, where, did you, where did you come from? I know you went to Queens College in Charlotte. I, I grew up in Atlanta and oh. came to North Carolina to go to college at Queens College in Charlotte. And I like to say North Carolina so much, I've never left. Well, and uh, we all love North Carolina. North Carolina is a great state. I mean, I, I said this on the air several times. There's only three kinds of people, people who live here, people who want to live here, and people that don't know about it. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. 
And speaking of North Carolina, the census data will soon be coming, I guess soon will be coming out, and it's going to show, of course, continued growth in North Carolina. And one of the things that's likely to result from that will be a reapportionment of the number of congressional seats, and North Carolina is likely, well, almost assured of gaining one. And that means we'll have to redistrict again. And redistricting is always... Uh, how do I say this? It's always, no matter which party is involved, there seems to be a little party politics involved in it. And uh, to their credit, the Democrats admit that they used it, and the Republicans, to their credit, admit that they use it. So it, that's not a secret. But uh, how do you see redistricting as we uh, add a 14th congressman? What? How will that shake out? Will the Democrats end up with another seat, or will the Republicans be able to hold on and uh, uh, gerrymander the district so that they gain that seat? Well, you know, that that's the big question. Um, you know, just a couple points. The Republicans, the in North Carolina, the General Assembly is the body that draws the districts for the North Carolina House, the North Carolina Senate, and our congressional districts. Republicans are in charge of the House. They have the majority there. So they will be in charge of drawing the maps. Now, Don, over the years, we've had a number of court cases. And when I say a number, that is an understatement. We, we have tons, we have had tons and tons and tons of lawsuits um, over the redistricting. When Democrats were drawing the maps, Republicans sued. When Republicans draw the maps, the Democrats sued. So we've been back and forth with this. But the, the good thing about having those lawsuits is through all of that, each time we get a new set of rules or new set of criteria that the courts say you have to do this. And it starts with going back to the one man, one vote provision that is guaranteed through the our constitution that you know guaranteed the representation, one man, one vote. So what we'll do when we get these census numbers is we'll take all the number of people that live in North Carolina, we expect it to be well over 10 million because that's what the current population is. We'll divide that number by 14 and that's how many people will each live in the 14 congressional districts that we have. Now, you know, people choose to live where they want to live. They don't get assigned where they live based on the census numbers or redistricting. So what we'll see is, you know, then what you do is you begin to draw those districts with the first thing you've got to do is you've got to have the same number of people in each of those districts. And then it's things like trying to keep counties whole, trying not to break up different groups, to keep communities of interest with common interests together so that the whoever represents that district is representing people with common interest um that districts be contiguous there are there's a whole list of criteria that was established through the stevenson case one of the big redistricting lawsuits and then of course the the Voting Rights Act that was put into place in the 1960s also dictates how these districts are drawn so we have all these rules in place is kind of my point. It's not just uh, the wild, wild west. It's not just willy-nilly. We actually have sets of rules that the General Assembly, whoever is drawing the map, has to comply with. So, you know, we'll see how that, that comes out. We don't have those census numbers yet. It was delayed because of the pandemic. 
And once we get those, what we anticipate, Don, is that the General Assembly will come back in the fall, September, October, probably, to have a special session just to do the redistricting. And again, they will draw all 50 of the state Senate seats, 120 of the House of Representatives seats, and what, as you mentioned, what we anticipate, not 13 congressional seats, but 14 under the new census numbers. And that almost guarantees that uh, Raleigh and Charlotte will have a congressman that unless they split the, the uh, Wake County and Mecklenburg County, uh, will almost have a congressman that serves just one county. Right. And what we've seen, it's really kind of interesting when you look at those demographics and you look at the shift over the years, um, what we've seen, and I don't think North Carolina is unique in this, but what we've seen is as people move around North Carolina or as people move to North Carolina, our urban areas are becoming more heavily congested. More people are moving to the urban areas. It's where the jobs are. It's where the cultural things are. It's where more people want to live. So what's happened over the years is the districts in the urban areas have really gotten smaller because there's more people packed in there. And the districts in the rural areas have gotten bigger because there's fewer people that live there. So when you look at the, the switch of those maps over the years, you can see how that those population centers shift. So that's, you know, you're exactly right. And it's not just for the congressional maps, it's for the all the legislative maps. So what we see a lot of times is, a lot of the discussions at the General Assembly are not necessarily Republican versus Democrat. They're urban versus rural, you know, whether that is with infrastructure and transportation funding, whether it's the way the schools are set up, whether it's where highway money goes. Um, you know, a lot of it is driven by those different population centers that we have, which makes makes the politics and the policies in North Carolina really interesting. And another thing that I'm going to be interested to see is as we go more with more remote working opportunities where it doesn't really matter where people live, they can work from anywhere, having educational opportunities for their kids. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether we see some shifts in those demographics where people who maybe have lived in downtown Charlotte now want to live in, um, you know, the rural part of eastern North Carolina and are able to do so because of different um, work opportunities that are available through remote working and, and those kind of things. So um, it, it'll be really interesting to see and how what North Carolina looks like and again how we're going to determine where the representation is in North Carolina. So um, the, the redistricting happens every 10 years. Um, this is the year that it's going to happen and so we'll see we'll see a lot of fireworks I suspect at the General Assembly later in the fall. We had, of course, a very high-profile senatorial race in the Tillis race because uh, the uh, balance of power for the Senate was up. And, uh, of course, it turned out to be uh, that Tillis won, and it kept the Republicans at least in the ballpark because while there's a 50-50 majority with the vice president voting to give the Democrats control, it only takes one senator <laughs> to, to change on a particular issue. Uh, the next election, if we think the Tillis race was important, um, uh, the Burr seat is going to be just as high profile because, of course, obviously the Republicans are going to be fighting to, recon uh, to recapture control of the Senate. Um, we've already had a number of people who have announced 
how are you handicapping that race at this point in time? And do you, who else do you think will enter the fray? Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, this is going to be five questions in all that. Right. <laughs> uh, well, let, let me see if I can take them one at a time or, or kind of figure out something here, but um, yeah, the birth seat is going to be interesting too, because there's not an incumbent. I mean, don't forget in the Tellus race, Tom Tellus was defending his seat and, um, so th this is this race really is wide open. And we've seen Mark Walker on the Republican side, former congressman, has declared that he is running for that seat. Um, Erica Smith, Jeff Jackson, who have served in the North Carolina Senate are both running. Uh, Lara Trump is talking about getting into that race. Uh, she is originally from Wilmington, I think an NC State graduate. Uh, President Trump's daughter-in-law is, she has not made a decision, but she's kind of toying with it. Um, former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Sherry Beasley, has, I believe she has announced, I mean, has anticipated that she is going to enter that race as well. So, um, you know, it will be, we'll, we'll have a, because it's an open race, I think we're going to have two very, um, very competitive primaries on both the Republican and the Democratic side. And the other thing that I think we can count on, Don, is there'll be a lot of money that was spent on this race. And as you mentioned, a lot of national interest in this race because of the impact that it will have on the division of power at the U.S. Senate. It's an, it's an important race, not only in North Carolina, but at the national level for who controls um, the, the U.S. Senate. Well, as we've talked about the growing number of people who are registered on affiliate, uh, about one-third of the population, uh, so about one-third of the electorate is going to be uh, choosing because an unaffiliate can choose which primary they elect to vote in. Uh, obviously, almost every unaffiliated voter has leanings one way or the other, and it's been said that, that probably a slight majority of the unaffiliates lean Republican, but that doesn't mean that they might not uh, choose to vote on the Democratic slate if they see someone there that they like. So sure. the other affiliates are going to be really interesting to watch during this uh, primary uh, that is coming up, especially with the long list of candidates. Right, and and really bringing different things to the to the table. So you've got um, you you've got got choices with that. Um, so, you know, you're, you're exactly right. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting how those unaffiliated voters will really make a difference. And I think what we're going to see in some of the candidates, we're already seeing them tying themselves to some of the national candidates, whether it's the Biden administration, uh, Joe Biden himself, or um, Kamala Harris, or President Trump and, you know, Lara Trump certainly is tying herself to her father-in-law. And so, again, it, it's not just about the candidate. It's not just about North Carolina. We really are on the national stage. And I think that'll have an impact. I think how Joe Biden is doing, what the economy looks like, and how optimistic people feel about the direction of the, com of the country, where we are in this pandemic recovery, um, I think are going to be huge factors in how people decide who they vote for in 2022. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, as everyone who listens to this program knows, I, I, I'm a registered on affiliate. Uh, okay. So let's say that I decide to vote uh, in the Democratic primary. And let's say there's a runoff in both parties. In the runoffs, can I change and then flip over and vote in the Republican primary? I, can't, I know I can't vote in both. 
can I change from the, the primary election and the runoff elections? You know, Don, we'll have to look that up. But I think that once you make a decision in the primary, which party you want to vote, which ticket you want to vote, you have to stick with that. I don't think you can change. How would they know? But that's a good question. Well, because when you go to the when you go well, to the, that's right. the uh, poll which, and you yeah. get your ballot, you know, there's there's a, a record there of it. Yeah. You're right. I, I was uh, thinking they, they didn't good, necessarily know who I voted for. Yeah, but, and just you know, real quick along those lines, while we're talking about election, I'll just mention that um, even today there's a um, there's a bill going through the General Assembly that's looking at making some changes to our absent the way that we vote absentee and some of the other voting regulations, um, making sure that people have a photo ID. Um, provisions where they would have a mobile unit that would actually go to people's houses to provide them what they need to get an ID. So some interesting things there around some of the voting regulations. And again, learning from the pandemic, what can we do better in the next election? So the General Assembly's taking a good hard look at that. Becky Gray is our guest. We have one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. We're going to turn in the next segment to talking about the uh, the current session of the North Carolina General Assembly and what's up there for consideration. And Becky will give us her views on how they're proceeding. And we'll do that when we return with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look. Flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. And we're back with the, the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers for today. Uh, Becky Gray is our guest. Uh, she is Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, works in policy and uh, studies these issues. And we have had her on numerous times to explain these more complicated issues. We've already talked in many cases about uh, the first segment about the pandemic and the effects in North Carolina and how we've sort of come out of this thing better uh, than we might have expected. We've talked about the uh, sort of the future of the redistricting and the fact that we might be adding a congressman. And uh, we've also talked about uh, a number of other issues in the other segments. In this segment, I want to turn to the current session of the North Carolina General Assembly uh, in session now. And uh, 
A uh, couple of things that we start off with is one, uh, the General Assembly is blessed with uh, with not having a severe uh, money problem. I mean, there's there seems to be enough money to go around. And sometimes, Becky, that's a problem. When you've got more money than you thought you were going to have, that can also be a problem because all of a sudden, all the hands come out all at once. Right. And, yeah, you know, particularly now because of the concerns about what we're left with with the pandemic. Uh, Don, we talked in an earlier segment about concerns about the learning loss that we have for our students and the big problem that that's going to be to address. Uh, but, yeah, the you know, because of smart decisions that we've made in the past, putting money aside when we had extra money, really watching every penny that we spend and making some really good, smart fiscal decisions um, have, have left us in really good shape. So we were we were in good shape going into this. The economic downturn, the problems that we anticipated might happen did not happen. The revenue has also continued to, to be on track, if not even a little bit ahead of where we were. So North Carolina is in, in very good financial shape. Now, it doesn't mean by any stretch that we ought to go out spending money and draining all the savings accounts and building debt. You know, this, this is not the time for any of this. We need to continue on this fiscally conservative, fiscally smart path that we've been on. But um, the General Assembly is, is, is looking at this. They We just got the governor's budget, which the governor, probably not surprisingly, if you, if you have been keeping up with this, wants to spend a lot of money. His budget is about, gosh, it's close to 12% increase in spending over last year's budget. Um, he's proposing a $4.5 billion bond and then um, some other, you know, again, kind of spending the money that we have. So the General Assembly now is is putting their budget together. And I think we'll see very different priorities as the General Assembly puts their budget together. But Don, the other thing that we have is we have additional COVID money coming in from the federal government. And there's a question of, you know, again, because North Carolina has been so responsible financially, we don't really need a big influx of money from the federal government. But Joe Biden and, and Congress have approved this. And so now they're looking at how do we, if we're going to get this money, how do we spend it well? How do we spend it smart? Um, and how do we spend it for the long run? So kind of two big things happening at the General Assembly over the next several weeks up to the new fiscal year. And one is how do we spend the rest of this COVID money in directions that are smart, are responsible, and have a long-term plan. So I think you're going to see things, and, and some of that is directed from the federal government. There's not a lot of wiggle room or leeway, but a lot of it is directed to continuing with the pandemic rollout, with the vaccine, and taking care of the testing and all of the things that we still need because of the, the pandemic and the COVID infections. There's money to help businesses again, small businesses get back up on their feet, get their employees back. Um, there's money, I think, for additional unemployment benefits for those folks who have been out of work for months through no fault of their own so that they can at least pay their bills to, to get through this. And then a lot of money dedicated to education and, again, getting our kids back on their feet. So we're going to see this COVID money coming from the ARP plan, A-R-P. It's an acronym for the American Recovery Plan. And then in addition to that, we'll have the state budget coming together that will fill the, the core functions that we need using state money, state taxpayer money that comes in. And so for that, we'll be doing things like 
enrollment growth in our schools. We'll be doing um, needs through the health and human services, funding the court system, addressing those needs. Um, perhaps raises for state employees, particularly some of those frontline workers that we've seen. So a lot of considerations there. Um, Donna mentioned earlier in the segment about broadband and access to broadband. That's something else that's a high priority for the General Assembly is there is some federal money coming in to help with the, the lines and laying the infrastructure for the broadband, and then it's how do you deploy that? How do you get it to the people that need it? So we're going to be seeing some efforts along that way as well. And, and, and that's an issue that it seems to have bipartisan agreement that uh, that's good for all segments of the population. Uh, broadband uh, not only helps in tele telehealth, but education and commerce. So there seems to be a lot of agreement that uh, broadband is a uh, priority and I, I expect that we'll see a lot of that money go that way. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. And there is a lot of there is a lot of agreement. And you know, there is agreement across party lines on a lot of this. You know, where we get down to it is, okay, how are we going to solve the problem? And there may be differing ideas of how to do that. Um, in education, I think there is wide agreement that this learning loss that we're going to be dealing with with our students is something that needs to be done. I, I, I think it's a really good idea. Others who think about these things in the same way that I do think that offering additional school choice and additional opportunity for parents to choose what is best for their students is a real is, is the way that we should go about this. Um, you know, others believe that putting more money into the traditional public school is the way to go. And probably at the end of the day, the answer to that is we probably should do both um, to ensure that that all options are available to the children with education education. Universities is something else. You know, something we really haven't gotten into, but I know is really dear, near and dear to your heart, is, as many North Carolinians, is our university system and our community college system. And what we've seen through this pandemic of the way, again, delivering education in different ways. And are there things that we can learn out of this? You know, will we, will we, go, will we ever go back to every class will be offered in person in a brick and mortar school? Or do we look, need to look at at creative, innovative ways to deliver education and higher education. Um, another thing that I think we're really going to be kind of doing some soul searching on is the value of higher education and how we pay for that and how we offer students the best value for the money um, and, and not have them graduate with crushing debt that takes them years to pay off. You know, how can we do these things better? So I think there's some real lessons um, that we can learn through this pandemic of thinking outside the box of how do we deliver higher education for the best value, the best value of dollars, best bang for the buck for our university students, as well as community college students. Well, we, 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 we always get back to infrastructure, and we have two problems there. We have a number of, uh, of our infrastructure projects that involve replacing worn-out infrastructure, but uh, we've also talked about the growth of North Carolina. And of course, every time somebody moves in, we've got to get infrastructure to that residence or that new subdivision or that new population area. So infrastructure is is always going to be there also and probably for a growing state even more important than we might think. 
You know, you, you are so right. And when we talk about infrastructure, I think broadband has become part of that conversation. We also think about roads and bridges and, you know, how, how are we going to travel around the state? But the other thing is, is the water and sewer infrastructure that we have that is critical for development, not only for residents, people moving into the state, but businesses as well. And one of the challenges that we have in North Carolina is many of our water and sewer systems were built 50 or so years ago with materials that were designed to last for 50 years. So we are at the point where we're going to have to replace those. It's an expensive proposition and also an opportunity to think about, you know, how can we do this better? As North Carolina's population grows, the systems that we've had in place for 50 years may not work as well as we want them to that we need to really think of how do we how do we do it not only for today, but how do we plan for the next 50 years? Becky, one of the questions that uh, seems to be, have a, a real uh, uh, interest to a lot of people, and they feel very strongly about it both ways, and that's the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, and, uh, what, what's your feeling of that? Well, I think that um, in, in North Carolina, under the current system of Medicaid that we have, over 20% of our population is on Medicaid. Um, 54% of the babies born in North Carolina today are born under Medicaid. Medicaid was designed as a safety net project program for um, aged, disabled, poor children, poor mothers, um, you know, to help with, with again, those safety net programs that we think about that those most vulnerable people who we as a society have an obligation to help. And when you talk about Medicaid expansion and expanding that program, that puts pressure on the program that's in place to fulfill those needs for the people that we have. Under the Medicaid expansion program that the the governor and others are talking about here in North Carolina would expand Medicaid to an additional 600,000 people, 80% of those folks are able-bodied, childless, working age adults. So it is not, this is not just expanding the number of people on Medicaid, but this is widely expanding the intent of the program. Um, Medicaid is a, is a vulnerable program. And in many of the studies show that the, the people who are getting the Medicaid services are not getting the best health care. It's not widely available. We need to fix that program for the people that are on it now before we start talking about expanding it. And if the problem is that people can't afford health insurance, then instead of expanding Medicaid, let's look at ways to bring down the cost of health insurance, bring down the health of the cost of health care so that people can afford the health insurance and the health care that works best for their families. So it's a different way of looking at it, Don. And some of the some of the ways that you could do that would be to repeal the certificate of need laws, to expand the scope of practice, to um, use telehealth more, get a, have association health plans. There's lots of ways to do that that doesn't involve an expansion of a program that was designed for a certain population. But you're right, controversial. I think we'll continue to, I think we'll continue to talk about this. Yeah, this one is, this along with redistricting will probably be the most controversial issues that the General Assembly will have. Uh, at least in this session. Well, Becky, thank you so much for sharing with us your thoughts and opinions. Uh, by the way, I hear a roll of thunder as we're recording this program in the background. Uh, 
If you are listening to a station that carries only the half-hour version, you can hear the entire broadcast by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, or you can share the broadcast with a friend. Uh, Jason Kong has produced our program, and he'll have another guest for us again next week on the same group of stations. So the next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.